John chapter 1. We are breezing our way through the first chapter. We'll finish John 1 today. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. We can put one in your hand. I'll be picking up with verse 35. John 1, starting in verse 35. Why don't you stand as we read the Word of God together? You won't have to stand till the end, as far as I know, so good exercise. If you're at home, you can stand too if you want. We can't see if you are or not, but uh, feel free to do so. And if you're driving, don't. So, John 1, starting verse 35, again, the next day, Jesus stood with two of his disciples and looking at Jesus, as he walked, he said, behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned and seeing them, following them, said to them, what do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, which is to say when translated, teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and see. They came and saw where he was staying and remained with him that day. Now it was about the tenth hour, or four o'clock in the afternoon in our time. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ, and brought him to Jesus. Now when Jesus looked at him, he said, you are Simon, the son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas which is translated, a stone. Let's pray again. Father, we ask for the ministry, help, anointing of your Holy Spirit on this, your word, on me, your servant, on all of us, your servants here. Lord, those that know you by name would grow in your grace. If anyone here doesn't know you, they would know you as Lord and Savior. Lord, remove me once again from the equation that we might hear from Jesus. Lord, we ask for just an ushering in of the Spirit of God. Uh, Lord, this may, this may not just be a Bible study, but transformational in our walk with you. Cleanse us by the word, encourage us, comfort us by the word, Lord. And we just pray that you would be honored and glorified. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Uh, we left off, uh, I was here two weeks ago, uh, so Trevor was sharing last Sunday as I mentioned, but uh, two weeks back, we left off uh, with John the Baptist declaring Jesus to be what? The Lamb of God. That's what, that's what uh, he proclaimed there when he saw Jesus coming towards him in the prior scene. And then we saw the Holy Spirit do what? When he baptized Jesus, the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus. And he heard the very voice of the Father blessing, saying, This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. And so that brings us to this next scene that we just read. And John the Baptist sees Jesus once again walking towards him. But it's here that John the Baptist definitively steps back and Jesus steps to the foreground uh, as Jesus will now begin his ministry. And the ministry will begin with not only him preaching, but him calling the twelve. And so what we see here is Jesus gathering the first of his Disciples, if you're taking notes, you see the title uh, on the screen, Follow the Lamb. And so my uh, two, just two points we'll look at today, and they're more kind of placeholders than instructive, although uh, you can see the subtitle actually means a little bit more in the sense disciples follow. We see these first disciples follow, but I have the next day and the following day. I know that's really deep, uh, but that is what 
I want the reason why I've done that, I want us to focus on what takes place in those two days. So what's taking place? Uh, because the scene prior, if you go back to our study two weeks ago, that was a back-to-back days where we had, uh, you know, remember the, uh, John said, I'm not worthy to lose his sandal strap. And then the next day, he saw Jesus coming and says, behold the Lamb. So you have those two back-to-back days. And this is two back-to-back days we'll look at from now through, through verse uh, 51 in our text. We'll read verses uh, 43 through 51 in just a bit. But I just want to kind of set that up. So here's this next day. The defining truth, go back to verse uh, 35 for a second, and again, the next day, John stood with two of his disciples and looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, behold, the Lamb of God. The defining truth and message that comes through John the Baptist's witness of Jesus is said a second time here in verse 36, behold, the Lamb. Not behold the man even though Jesus is all man and all God. John the Baptist, he looked at Jesus and would continue to say, behold the lamb, behold the lamb. The word lamb, as we looked at two weeks ago, is what? It's symbolic, right? You don't normally call a man a lamb. It's symbolic. Now, it's more than just symbolic with Jesus. It is a title It's a very royal title, a very specific, a very unique title to him, but it's symbolic because why? All Jewish people at that time would have understood the necessity and the significance of the lamb in respect to what? A blood sacrifice. When we see lambs, we think wool sweaters. Right? Christmas time is ugly sweater season. When we see a lamb, we think wool sweaters. You might see rack of lamb in your mind, those of you that like. My wife does not like lamb or deer, those of you that like the venison and all that stuff. But uh, anything outside a cow in our house is, is just off limits. But uh, chickens are okay, too. But, but when, you, you know, when you see a lamb, you see a wool sweater, or you see a rack of lamb with a little bit of mint leaf on top of it and all that kind of stuff. But they saw a blood sacrifice. Now, they did see food because, again, they, they, ate, a lot of, they ate a lot of lamb and, and even goats. But, um, but what they would understand when you would say, the lamb of God, they understood that because they understood the temple sacrifices, morning and evening sacrifice. They would see, it would resonate with the Jewish audience, oh, that's the sacrifice, a blood sacrifice. And since John had also stated that this specific lamb, if you go back, we don't have time, back to verse 29, He said, this lamb is not just any lamb. It takes away what? The sins of the world. So it was an unmistakable statement connecting Jesus to the sacrifice of an innocent lamb. They would would get the picture. They might not really comprehend it all, but they would get what he was saying. Now understand uh, that Jesus, as he's walking towards John in this scene, he possibly has already gone into the wilderness for his 40 days and 40 nights with Satan and the temptation in the wilderness. And Jesus, remember, he didn't eat during that time. Um, It's possible that he's returning from the wilderness. We don't know. But that John states this same title, the Lamb of God, once again, it tells us how important this was to John. As a matter of fact, most biblical scholars believe that this particular title, John treasured. 
Um, remember, he was the forerunner, and he had that specific role, and he kept pointing to Jesus as the Lamb of God. Some scholars even believe that John said this every single time that Jesus approached, that that would be John's signature. You ever seen people have a, a signature item or something that they're known for? You know, see people with an icon. If John would have been known for something, it's very possible, we don't know this until we get to heaven, but it's possible that John was known for saying, the Lamb of God, the Lamb of God, the Lamb of God. He's the only one that says it, and we see him say it, and John the Apostle makes sure we understand that this was prominent in the way he would speak when Jesus would come towards him. So, well, we don't know, again, if that's the case, but the word behold, he says, behold the Lamb of God. The word behold, it means steadfast attention. Steadfast attention. A lot of us today suffer with ADD, right? We have attention disorders called smartphone deficit disorder or whatever you want to call it. You know, we, uh, we, have, uh, we have steadfast attention to maybe some device and we get sidetracked with things that don't really matter. Uh, we check the weather app 12 times a day. Uh, why do we search? Oh, I have a thought, so I'll search and look it up, and hopefully Wikipedia is right, which sometimes it's not, but uh, all that kind of stuff. And, you, and Jesus says, no, no, put your attention on me. John says he has this steadfast attention towards, he's beholding Jesus, He's only looking at Jesus. He's blocking out all the distractions. And he says, behold the Lamb of God with that steadfast attention. But what a unique title. And one that only applies to Jesus. Would we all agree with that? This is a title that you could... There's been many presidents of the United States, but there's only been one Lamb of God. Aren't you glad that's true? There's been lots of mayors. There's been lots of governors. There's been lots of emperors. But there's only been one... Lamb of God, no other man that's ever walked the earth has been called the Lamb of God. This is unique to Jesus. And, and John is clearly amazed by it. Are you amazed by it? Or is it ho-hum to you? Are you more amazed by things that aren't that big a deal, like uh, a world premiere or some show or some sporting event? But John is clearly amazed that Jesus, the one sent from God to atone for our sins, was now revealed, no longer hidden. Jesus is not hiding anymore. Uh, not that he was ever hiding, but he's not in the shadows. He's been fully revealed, and John was amazed that he's now walking on the earth among mankind. Now, as John was pointing to Jesus, we know that the full understanding of that title and that statement really escapes the hearing of the hearers. Um, you've seen this many times where it says that later the disciples understood something. Later they understood. They didn't understand it when it first happened. But this is not just, uh, in, in this instance, uh, we see this in other uh, aspects of us understanding what Jesus, who Jesus is and what he's saying. Take, for example, in John 16, 12. I love this passage. It still applies to us today. I live this passage constantly, and so do you. Jesus said, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. This is one of the reasons why you keep coming to church. God has a lot more to teach you and me. Matter of fact, even while I'm teaching, I'm usually being, not usually, always being taught while I'm teaching. There's a Chinese proverb, he who teaches learns. It's true. And so 
Uh, God always has many things to teach us. Matter of fact, even in eternity, we'll probably keep learning about the never-ending magnitude of God, even in heaven. So he says, I have many things to tell you. Remember, John 14 through 16 is all a message to believers. Judas had left the room. Jesus is only speaking to believers there. He says, I have a lot to teach you, but you won't get it all in one shot. Would you agree that the Christian life, you didn't learn everything in one day? No. You'll learn this week things that you didn't really realize. You'll learn about yourself. You'll learn about the Lord. And so uh, Jesus is saying here, or John, you know, when John says, this is the Lamb, they get the connotation, but the full weight of it, the full depth of it, um, there, there's no doubt that everybody is not seeing all the gravity of what this means. The full revelation of Jesus, just like the teachings of Jesus, aren't fully revealed in a single moment. They unfold over time. We have more than enough to know what to do with the truth, but the truth is deep, right? Remember salvation, you've got to become like what? A little child. But a little child can't pastor a church. You have to learn over time for certain things. A little, past, a little child can't parent a family. There's a learning that takes place so that just like a little tree can't bear fruit just yet. It has to grow. And so we see that there's an there's a, um, understanding of what the Lamb of God, God means, but the full depth of it, the full weight of it, I'm sure the hearers didn't all understand it all. And even John himself likely didn't understand the full gravity of Jesus being the Lamb, and there's no doubt the Holy Spirit told him, call him the Lamb of God, but even John himself wouldn't have fully understood all that that means. Uh, but what it probably sounded like, this is my understanding here, just kind of put it in a layman's terms, what it probably sounded like to those with soft hearts, these disciples that are standing with John, what it probably sounded like to them is something along these lines. Behold the one we need. Behold the one we need. One of the reasons why the world will accept an antichrist is there's going to be problems that nobody can solve, and they'll say, we just need someone really smart. We need someone with like eight degrees from Harvard that can figure out the economic issues, uh, the poverty issues, the political issues, and the world, the world will accept an antichrist because they'll say, all of you do this, do this, do this, give up all these freedoms, wear this, and, and everything will be fine. And I'll show you my master plan. They didn't know what they needed, but when they saw Jesus and they knew the Lamb of God and they understood the blood sacrifice at some level, they hear, I believe, something along those lines. Look at the Lamb, behold the Lamb, the one we need. John's disciples, he knew, they knew, they knew John was a prophet. John had his own disciples that, remember, they had been baptized by him in the Jordan. They knew he had been sent by God. They knew God had used them. God had used him mightily in their lives, and I said the same is true in our lives. You've all had people that God's used mightily in your life, right? I've had people that have discipled me, mentored me, currently disciple me, currently mentor me, currently challenge me. I like to have people in my life that are more mature than me, that push me farther than I want to go. People that will ask me tough questions. I've had lots of people in my life lots of men in my life that are still in my life that God's used in my life, but guess what? They can't save me. They can't save you. The people in your life that have God's used, they've been used mightily, but they have a limit. They cannot save you. They cannot do certain things. And these disciples that are standing with John 
they seem to recognize immediately that Jesus is on a totally different level than John the Baptist. And John the Baptist, Jesus is the greatest man born of woman. And yet they immediately recognize when they see Jesus, he's on a whole different level. And of course he is. Let me read the same passage from the Jewish Bible. This is what the same, instead of behold the Lamb of God, this is what it means when you take the Hebrew translated through the, uh, either the Greek or the Aramaic into English. This is what it reads from the Jewish Bible. Yeshua walking by, look, God's Lamb. Look, God's Lamb. That's what they heard in the Jewish content. That's God's Lamb. If this is God's lamb, brothers and sisters, we need to follow him, amen? This is God's lamb, we need to follow. And they do. It says, and the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned and seeing them, verse 38, said, what do you seek? They do follow him, not knowing exactly what all of this means, and all that Jesus is, they simply immediately see that he's divine. And they begin to follow him, and Jesus turns to them, knowing them infinitely more than they knew him. They barely knew him, and yet he knows everything about them. Isn't that true of you and me? We, we approach Jesus, he knows everything about us, we know this much about him. And they ask, or he asked them, what do you seek? And by the way, he's asked that of every person that has ever, will ever live. He says, what are you seeking? He's asking that of Americans, your neighbors, your cousins, your family members. He's asking each person, what do you seek? And notice their answer. And what they call him, they say to him, Rabbi, which is translated teacher. Where are you staying? The, their answer demonstrates a simple desire to know more about Jesus and to learn from Jesus. That's their answer. Teacher where are you staying? You know, you ask people questions, you're trying to get to know them. If I meet you and you meet me and we're, we're new to each other, usually questions like this come. So where'd you grow up? Where were you born? Where are you from? What do you do for a living? Don't ask how much they make, stuff like that, or you've, you've really stepped out of bounds. But we want to get to know people, we ask them questions. What's your favorite sports team? What do you like to eat? Those kind of things. But they, their question, where are you staying? It's a simple desire to know more about Jesus and to learn from him. And in Jesus' response, what does he say? He says to them, come and see. And we see that Jesus will never reject a simple and sincere. Remember, you've got to come like a little child. He'll never reject a simple and sincere desire to know him and to learn from him. Boy, God wants us to have more simplified prayers that are sincere. Remember when, G remember when Peter was slipping? How about this deep prayer? Help me! But it was sincere, and Jesus, of course, immediately helps him. We say, Lord, would you please teach me, and I want to know you more. That's a sincere prayer. You can pray that prayer, and you wake up in the middle of the night, you can pray it when you're riding down the highway, you can pray it, Lord, I want to know you more, please teach me. God loves that prayer because he says, come and see. The only issue is if we don't want to come and see, right? The only issue is we don't want to be taught. We don't want to know him more. We don't want to come closer. We don't want to see where he is. We know where he's at now. We, we approach him at the throne of grace. So we want to come 
and be taught. The reason why you're here this morning, I believe, is you want to come to the feet of Jesus and you want to learn more from him. Let's notice the transition in verse 40, into verse 40. Uh, one of the two who heard John speak and followed him, his name was Andrew. By the way, the, there's two here with John the Baptist. So you have John the Baptist, Andrew's with him, and the other one's unnamed. Most scholars believe that it is actually the apostle John himself. John never names himself. He's very humble throughout the book, never mentions himself. But I t- personally believe that John who later becomes, him and Peter become tight, right? You know, John, Peter and John walk into the temple. But uh, so you have Andrew there, and we don't know for sure, but probably or very possibly the Apostle John standing with John the Baptist. So the two Johns would have been John 1 and John 2 hanging out right there together. Um, one is, will live past all the other apostles. The other one will die a martyr's death just before Jesus. So Andrew... Um, He's there. He is named. John, if he is one of the other two, isn't named. But Andrew had a brother named Simon. He goes and finds his brother Simon. And he tells his brother Simon, we have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. So we have this transition here. Um, These two men, whether it be Andrew and John or Andrew and someone else, they're struck by the title, God's Lamb. They're struck by his presence, and they immediately believe that he must be heard, and that they need to be taught by him. They spend just a short period of time. It says, um, it says back in verse 39 that they were with him. They stayed with him and remained with him that day. Uh, from 4 o'clock, they start to remain with Jesus. But in a short period of time, they come to believe that Jesus is not just a really good teacher. They come to believe He's far more than that. Notice when they say, you know, we got to go tell somebody who this is. I'll go get my brother. By the way, the, the, the way most of us have come to Christ is someone invited us. How many of you were invited by somebody to church or something like that? Um, yeah, I was. I was invited to Calvary Chapel, Fort Lauderdale. And uh, even though I'd grown up going to church as a kid and then didn't so much in my teen and college years, um, I, I was unsaved and someone invited me. So most times we're invited to the gospel or to a gospel presentation at a church, and so that's what takes place here. But they had been with Jesus from that afternoon into the evening, a relatively short period of time, and they come to the conclusion that he's more than a great rabbi. Way more than a great rabbi. And so Andrew goes and finds his new brother, or no, he goes and finds his, not a new brother, but he's going to come to him in a second. He finds his brother Simon. And they don't say, we have found the greatest rabbi ever. They say, we have found the Messiah. The Christ, it means the anointed one. They're synonyms, whether you can say Messiah or Christ, they both mean the anointed one. And by the way, this is one of only two places in the entire New Testament where the Hebrew word for Messiah is used. Right here, there's only two places. This is one of the two, uh, Mashiach, which is translated into the Greek. And why is that important? Well, it's informing us that the Apostle John, by the Holy Spirit, wanted to affirm that, yes, Jesus is the world's Messiah, but he came first to the house of Israel because that was very important in the prophetic and that Jesus would come first 
to the house of Israel, that he'd be of the household of Israel. He was coming, of course, for the whole world, but he comes first. Uh, God is very detailed. Every single detail is exactly the way God lays it out. Remember, Jesus was promised to the seed of Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to Moses, that he'd be the seed of Judah and of the, and of the house of David. And we'll see this further verified in the text in verses 43 through 49. But as we noted throughout chapter 1, Jesus has a sovereign right to rule. Would you agree with that? Jesus has a sovereign right to rule over all the nations, over all the world. But he came first not to rule, but to what? Redeem. He came to redeem. Not to subject, but to save. Now later, he will come. The first coming was to come to redeem. The second coming is to rule and reign. But the first coming was to redeem. And you know, like, like we've talked about a few weeks ago, we needed a lamb, not a lion. We'll come back with the lion. Like you ever seen the, the Chronicles of Narnia when Aslan, after he's done dying on the altar, you're all like cheering, you know, you, you can't wait for him to rise up and do what a, what a massive 550-pound male lion with supernatural capabilities in a movie like Chronicles of Narnia can actually fly across the terrain and stuff like that. You want Jesus to come back as a lion, but you first needed him in the first coming, and so did I, to come as a lamb. That he'll come back to rule and reign. But what takes place next in verse 42, because Jesus came to redeem first, not to reign, not to rule. He said he did not come to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. So he comes first to redeem, and we see what takes place in the life of Peter in verse 42. Pick it up with me. And he brought him to Jesus. Now when Jesus looked at him, him being Peter, he said, you are Simon, the son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated a stone. What takes place in verse 42 with Peter is a picture of Jesus completely changing a life as he's done with us, as he does with each of us. By changing what? His name. He changed his name from Simon to Cephas. Jesus is speaking here in the Aramaic, and he says, you're Simon, the son of John. Uh, Jonah is the Aramaic speaking of the word John, so, or the name John. So Jonah in Aramaic, John in English. But Shimon, or Simon, Shimon is the Hebrew name of Simon. Shimon means hearer. That's what the word means. And so uh, Jesus says, you're a hearer, and that's a good thing. But as he becomes a doer, I'm going to make you a rock. Do you want to be made a rock in this world? Do you want to be able to be a rock instead of, I don't know, a dandelion that just, <laughs> just gets blown to pieces? You want to be a rock, and you need to be a rock, but only Jesus, the rock, can make us strong and able to uh, stand firm. Because Peter later, remember when he denies Christ three times? He wasn't such a rock that night. And Jesus even told him, uh, I still love, um, uh, another pastor coined it, but you know, when uh, Peter said, Jesus said, you know, Satan's desired to sift you like wheat, you know, another pastor said once, uh, you told him no, right? <laughs> he didn't. He let him go through it, but he was going to make him 
He was going to make him a rock. But the picture is clear. Those that come to know Jesus are changed forever. Not always the same. Uh, you know, again, he doesn't always change uh, our names like he did with Peter. But he changes us. And it does appear in the age to come that we all will get an additional name. Uh, I, again, I think that, by the way, Peter, he does get a name change, but he's still often called Simon. And he's also called Peter. So it goes back and forth. You'll see him as Cephas. You'll see him as Simon. In the Old Testament, we see this with Jacob becomes Israel, but they still sometimes call him Jacob, and sometimes they call him Israel. So uh, in the age to come, I believe we also get an additional name in the book of Revelation. It's kind of a foreshadowing here. Revelation 2.17, To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone on the stone, a what? New name, which no one knows except him who receives it. So we may all be seeing the same, this is kind of a foreshadowing that Jesus is going to give us a name that he's picked that mom and dad had nothing to do with, even though the Lord helped with that too. So let's move on to uh, verse 43. Pick it up with me. Let's read together. The following day, and here if you're taking notes, I've got this really fancy second title called The Following Day. Uh, the following day, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said to him, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered and said to him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Most assuredly I say to you, hereafter you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. So this is the next day. This literally is the next day after what we just saw. Peter's name change is now transitioned to the very next day. And the next day Jesus finds Philip. And in every case, Jesus finds us before we find him. Amen? In every case, Jesus finds us first. The Spirit of Christ seeks the lost. In, in Luke 19.10, uh, for the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which is lost. In John 15.16, you did not choose me, but I chose you that you might go and bear fruit. And thankfully, Jesus is the only one that can help us bear fruit. We wouldn't bear fruit unless it was him, but but he has sought us, and he has chosen us, and he has bought us. And in this case, Jesus is once again, as he always is, searching for the soul to save, but he's also searching for the 12 to start the ministry. So it's a kind of a dual, uh, yes, he wants Philip saved, but he also is calling Philip to be one of the 12. Yes, he wants John and Andrew, but he's also calling them to be uh, disciples and ultimately apostles. But if you're saved, aren't you glad Jesus sought you and found you and chose you? This does not negate, by the way, free will. Just because Jesus sought them doesn't negate free will. Uh, the essence is that Jesus sought and chose us first. I might, matter of fact, I noticed my wife before she noticed me. 
but she had to choose me back when I asked her out on a date way back in ancient times, you know, so, which uh, is late 80s. But anyway, um, not ancient to some of you, I know, but uh, some of you, it is ancient. You're like, well, they didn't have smartphones then? No, they did not. Uh, we had a long cord that went around the whole house, you know, so uh, that's how you talk to each other. Just keep walking the cord. You can almost walk to the mailbox with our cord, you know, and come back. It was that long, but... Uh, but it doesn't negate free will. We have to choose him back. Judas, for example, was chosen of the twelve, but he didn't choose back. He ultimately rejected, didn't he? God's not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. Uh, but turn our attention back to verse 43. Back to verse 43. Jesus wanted to go to Galilee, and he finds Philip. Jesus intentionally goes to Galilee. Everything Jesus does is intentional, by the way doesn't do anything accidentally. Everything's intentional. He intentionally goes to Galilee to find Philip, and the command is the same to Philip that it is to you and me, and he says these simple words, follow me. No other information. It's a straight command, follow me. A yes or no reply is all you're really going to get. And, uh, but Jesus is saying, look, don't just acknowledge me follow me. A lot of people acknowledge Jesus but don't follow Jesus. Wouldn't you agree with that? Oh, I believe in Jesus. He was a great teacher. Would you follow him? Well, I don't have time for that. People think I'm weird. People think I'm a freak or whatever else. They'll acknowledge Jesus but they won't follow Jesus. In other words, to follow him is to live our lives based on his words, based on his teaching, based on his command, his priorities, his word being a lamp unto our, uh, our feet, living walking in the Spirit, ultimately living as disciples, not just, yeah, I'm a churchgoer. No, I'm a disciple. Jesus, he calls us to be disciples. He, to follow him is to be a disciple. And Philip immediately believes in Jesus and immediately commits to being a disciple. His life now led by Christ. You know, Philip, he was from Bethsaida. If you look at the Sea of Galilee, Bethsaida is on the north side. You know, Capernaum is kind of like, if you look at the Sea of Galilee... Capernaum's right at the top, and then a little bit to the right or east, like going further into the Middle East, but on the same coastline as Bethsaida, and that is where Philip is from, and also Peter and Andrew, as the text tells us, are from that same city. They were fishermen. And just as Andrew had done, he goes and finds somebody to tell about Jesus. It's what disciples... It's what all of us are called to do. We're called to find someone to tell about Jesus. Amen? We're all called to go tell somebody. And why would we keep to ourselves our salvation, the escaping of judgment and hell to come? Why would we keep that to ourselves? Well, they look happy over there. No. We've got to tell them because the gospel really is good news. And he, uh, you know, just like uh, Andrew had done, he goes and finds someone to tell. And... He tells Nathaniel. He says, we, as in several of us, we found the one all the scriptures are pointing to, and his name is Jesus of Nazareth. Nazareth was also in Galilee, the son of Joseph. And Nathaniel's response immediately is, hold on a second, time out. Can anything good come from Nazareth? This is not a politically correct statement. Galilee was looked down on and often despised by the people of Judah, Jerusalem, the southern Judean area. 
that would be to the south, and they considered Nazareth to be working class, low class, uneducated, unsophisticated. The way a lot of New Englanders in the Ivy League may look at the south or the Midwest, or the flyover region, right? You know, people that have degrees from Harvard and Princeton, they fly over the top of the, the peons in the middle of the country and everything like that. Now, I'm, not, I'm generalizing here. There's not everybody thinks that way. That went to, there's Christians that went... Originally, Princeton was a uh, school for pastors. It's, far, it's really not that way anymore, but, uh, <laughs> but there was a time. Harvard was the same way, so was Yale and all these schools. But, uh, but you get the point. Uh, Galileans, they looked down on Nazareth as very... So the Judeans all looked down on Galilee, but even Galileans looked down on Nazareth. So this is like if someone says, your whole family's backwoods, and then you say, but you should meet my cousin, he's way more backwoods than I am, right? So um, even Galileans looked down on Nazareth as the worst, kind of the lowest rung of just kind of like very inept, unsophisticated. And it's interesting, uh, human beings in our nature, we always find someone we think is less important, less dignified, less able. No wonder the Father chose Jesus to come from Nazareth, right? Just like the stable, just like born in a manger. Instead of um, Jesus coming from the Ivy Leagues, it's like he has a GED. Essentially, when they look at Nazareth, that's the way they would kind of look at it. Like, you know, we, we expect someone with a doctorate and you're sending us a guy with a GED. Well, the, the interesting thing, uh, Jesus is far superior than every person on earth. They don't know that. Jesus can speak every single language. He knows every single thing about mathematics, biology, science, anything about everything. He knows it all. And yet the, the first thought is nothing good can come from Nazareth. Oh, it's only the Son of God. What Nathaniel is saying amounts to nobody of excellence can come from Nazareth, much less the promised one of Moses and the prophets. But Nathaniel's, uh, uh, you know, uh, or actually, Andrew says, to, uh, Philip says to him, come see for yourself. That's all he says, come, sit, come and see. And Nathaniel trusts the witness of his friend Philip and basically says, okay, I'll go. And Jesus, who came as much for Nathaniel as he did for Philip, sees him coming towards him, and he makes quite the statement. Uh, interesting that Nathaniel, uh, he makes quite the statement to Nathaniel, which I find interesting, that he, in spite of Nathaniel's built-in bias, right? He has a bias towards Nazareth, and nothing good can come from Nazareth. In spite of his built-in bias, Jesus still seems to say he has solid character. Not that he's a perfect man, he's still a sinner and needs to be saved, but it's some solid character. And by the way, aren't you glad that Jesus isn't and wasn't like today's cancel culture? Uh, Jesus could have said, uh, I heard you say nothing good can come from Nazareth, and because you said that, I will not talk to you. Because you made that statement, I will not talk. Matter of fact, we can't tweet together. We can't do Facebook together. Because you said that, I will not even speak to you because you said nothing good can come from Nazareth, and I'm from Nazareth. No. He overlooked Nathaniel's ignorance and even commended his character in saying, 
there's an Israelite in whom there's no deceit. He was an honest man. He was a, uh, he still needed a savior. That's why Jesus had approached him. But he says, look, um, Nathaniel says back, how do you know me? How do you know uh, my character? How do you know anything about me and my manner of life? And Jesus says, before Philip called you, I saw you, or I was thinking about you when you were under the fig tree, which is also a picture of the nation of Israel. So when you were under a literal fig tree, but also under the nation state of the house of Israel, and I believe, and some scholars believe also, this is also a picture of the tree of life. I saw you in eternity future and eternity past under the tree of life, which is found in two places, the garden and the book of Revelation in heaven. I saw you under the tree. I saw your beginning and your end. I saw the choice you're about to make. And Philip is convinced that if Jesus can see what he's doing from miles away, that he must be from God, right? If, if someone can tell you, I saw what you ate yesterday. Oh, where were you? Was it the cameras at Chili's or something like that? No. I can tell you everything about you, as Jesus did at the woman of the well when we get to John chapter 3. Uh, but Nathaniel's convinced. He says, you're the teacher. You're the son of God. You're the king of Israel. What a turnaround from thinking that nothing significant could come from Nazareth to believing that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus, you know, God is into the business of turnarounds. Uh, Carl F. Henry said, Jesus turns life right side up and heaven inside out. Where he changes our whole perspective because he changes us at, at the heart level. And Jesus goes on to say, you're not only going to see, you know, you, you, you've come to believe because of what I've said, but you're going to see greater things than these. You're going to see heaven opened up, open up. And all those that follow the Lamb will someday see the glory of God. Amen? We'll see the angels ascending and descending. Jesus says, you're going to see the angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is also a follow-up to when the, the Spirit descended upon Jesus. Now Jesus said, someday you'll see the angels, the seraphim, the cherubim, Michael, Gabriel, are the angels ascending and descending on me. This is kind of a weird thought, right? How do they ascend and descend on Jesus? But you've got to understand, this would resonate with Jewish hearers as well because they would remember that their nation's namesake got changed from Jacob to Israel. And when Jacob was there, a ladder was extended down out of heaven and the angels were ascending and descending on the ladder. And I believe the picture is clear. Jesus is saying, I'm the bridge from heaven and earth. There is no way from heaven and earth but me. That's why they're ascending not on a ladder, they're ascending on the Son of Man. He's the bridge. He's the, you've seen that picture of the cross that bridges between uh, earth and eternal life. And so he's saying, you're going to see the glory of heaven because I'm the bridge. And we'll look more at this title. Jesus says, ascending on the Son of Man. We'll look more at the title of the Son of Man in coming weeks and coming studies. It's the most often title Jesus applies to himself. But as we close it up here, and we need to come to a close, uh, if you've been keeping count, and I doubt that you have, but if you have been keeping count, there's been seven major titles of Jesus in the text we just read this morning, starting verse 35. And look at the screen, you can see the Lamb of God, Rabbi, the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, Son of God, King of Israel, and Son of Man. And he's worthy of every single one of those titles. Amen? He's worthy of every single one of those titles. But not only is he worthy, he's worthy of our now what? Full allegiance. And he bids us to come and see, 
and to follow him. Amen? Let's close in prayer, and the worship team's going to come up as we'll close with the taking of the Lord's Supper this morning. Transition to, as we take these elements, just take a few minutes to thank Jesus for being your lamb. At the end of this service, if you, if you want to come forward and have prayer, and don't know Jesus as Lord and Savior, we'll have some men standing over here who can pray with you, but for a few moments, just take this time now to say, Lord, thank you for coming. Thank you for atoning for my sins. Thank you for choosing me personally, calling by name. You came to Philip, you came to Nathaniel, and you came to me as well. And in Psalm uh, chapter 42, uh, it says in verse 9, I will say, God, my rock. And then in the third verse, a fourth verse says that I will go to the altar of God, to God, my exceeding joy. And, and, I, and just reminded, Peter's name got changed to rock. But we know that Jesus is the rock. And, he, and, and the psalmist says here, I will say, God, my rock. And he says, I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. And, the, and this sanctuary is, again, symbolic of us coming to the altar of the Lord. And the only reason we can come with exceeding joy, no matter what you're going through, is because God is our rock. Amen? And those of you watching online, the only reason you can come to the altar of the communion table is because the rock was first a lamb. Amen? The rock was first a lamb. And so Jesus is all of those things all the time simultaneously. There's times you, you need him as the lamb, even post-salvation. There's times you need him as a rock. There's times you need him as an altar. But he's all those titles we looked at because he rightfully then put the crown on his head when he did what? When he laid down his life, shed his blood, walked out of an empty tomb. That's what Jesus said. I want you to never, like John never would forget calling the Lamb of God, but Jesus said, and I don't want you to forget the work on the cross. We have this big cross over here. It's always a reminder that our salvation, and all that Jesus is, is because he completed the mission of redemption. That first coming to come to redeem and to seek and save that which is lost. And that's what we remember. Uh, we don't want the taking of the Lord's Supper to be just kind of something we do, but it's something He is. It's something Jesus is. He is our Lord. He is our Savior. He is all those beautiful titles that we saw in the text today, but He is those things to us personally. He, I love the psalmist says, to God, my rock. You know, the world will talk about God, but to you, He's your God. He's not just God. He is God, but he's your God. Jesus is not just Jesus. He's your Savior, personally. And so let's just pray, and then we'll take these elements together. Lord, we thank you again. Thank you never seems to be enough, but we thank you and praise you that you're the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Thank you for coming. Thank you for living, preaching the gospel, teaching the gospel, uh, selecting the apostles training them up. Lord, we're here because of the foundation of the prophets and the apostles, which was your foundation. You're the rock, you're the cornerstone on which Peter's little rock was built, and which our little bricks are slipped into the wall of the kingdom of God. And Lord, all this is because you said, it is finished. You shed blood, 
and the empty tomb. So we can't say thank you enough, but Lord, we simply say, Lord, we want to come and see more of you. We want to follow you. We want to walk after you. And we take these elements this morning or this afternoon, Lord, in just obedience to Jesus as our Lord and us as your disciples. It's in your name we pray.